This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. John 12, 20-26. The responsive reading has given us the context that we need. Uh, and Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And he is being hailed as the king of Israel. Now the crowd that hails him as king sees him as a king who will come, who will establish his rule, who will come and defeat his enemies and will free uh, God's people from Roman oppression. That's how they see this king that has come. And as uh, the crowds flock to him because of uh, the Lazarus miracle being made known, the jealous Pharisees, they speak and they say, Oh, you know, look how the whole world has gone after him. And, and what they mean by the whole world is, oh, all these people, which at that time would just be Jews. But then because they are jealous, they say, oh, so many people going after him. And so they say the whole world has gone after him. But in their jealousy, they are speaking more than they know. Because in saying that the whole world has gone after Jesus, they are being used by God to highlight the truth that God's purposes are not just for one nation, the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. And we see that right at the beginning of the Bible when God made that promise to Abraham. Right? He said to Abraham, through you, all peoples, all nations of the world will be blessed. So God's purposes right from the beginning was for the whole world, for all peoples, all nations. And at the end of the Bible in Revelation, John's vision in Revelation 7 shows us that God's purposes will be fulfilled. Because John sees a great multitude that no one could count. A great multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language. And they are there standing before the Lamb, worshipping, crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. So God's promise at the beginning, and at the end, God's purposes, God's promise fulfilled. At the beginning, at the end. And somewhere in between is us. Here, now, today. And this passage in John 12, 20-26 will help us answer the question in between God's promise and the fulfillment of His promises right at the end. Where we are, who we are now today, what are we supposed to do? So this passage will answer that question for us. So please join me as I pray and ask God to help us. Father, we need your help. We humbly come acknowledging that apart from you working, this will just be words on a page, this will just be uh, sound waves rushing by our ears. Only you can make us see. Only you can shine the light of your truth into our hearts. And so we pray, please, teach us that we may know. Help us know that we may live. Help us live for your glory, we pray. Amen. You can see the outline in your bulletin. And uh, the first point is the whole world. And as we said, God's purposes are for the whole world. 
And when I say the whole world, I don't mean that everyone will be saved, but rather that God's invitation, God's salvation goes out to everyone, all peoples, all nations, without distinction. You, you don't have to be an elite person or from a certain family or from a certain lineage. It goes out without distinction. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, I just want us at the beginning of this talk to, to remember that, to be aware that God is a God who saves. And my most recent encounter of this was with Yonkiet's father. I visited Yonkiet's dad at the hospital, I think the day just after he confessed Christ. And so my burden was to make sure he had truly come to understand And uh, to my joy, he showed real signs of faith. And I turned to Psalm 23. I was hoping to read, I mean, you know, when you go to hospital, Psalm 23 is the the favorite, right? But when I turned to Psalm 23, I realized that, you know, he could not understand the whole Psalm. So I just taught him, not even the first verse, I just taught him the, the first half of the verse. The Lord is my shepherd. And I explained to him that, that God is now your shepherd. If you have confessed Christ, God is now your shepherd. And I, and I taught him to do this. The Lord is my shepherd. And I, I held his hand. I, I said, Uncle, do this. The Lord is my shepherd. And I had the privilege again of visiting him about one and a half weeks later back at home. And uh, after talking and finding out his, how he's been doing, and obviously, um, you know, he's going through a lot of pain and there's this constant hiccups. You know, he can't sleep through the night. And most, you know, Yonkat tells me he sleeps at most one hour. And so, so my heart went out to him. And again, we went to Psalm 23. And this time I taught him the second half of the psalm, which is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And I wanted to explain, Uncle, okay, this, this does not mean that everything you want, you will get. Okay, so I begin to explain the difference between needs and wants. If the Lord is our shepherd, then everything we need, we will have, but not everything that we want. So I tried to confirm, and I said, okay, so uncle, what is it that you uh, need, but at the moment you don't have? See, I was trying to you know, see whether he understood. What is it that you need, but now you don't have? He looked at me and he said, nothing. See, remember, this is, this is, this is a man who is going through so much pain, who is having trouble sleeping at night, and, and he, he heard my question, and he said nothing. And I was just filled with so much joy, because before my eyes was evidence of a God who saves, God's hand at work saving this man. See, this is, this is the God we're talking about, the God who has purposes for all peoples that they may know of this salvation and come to Him. And so our passage begins with some Greeks coming. Now what is the connection between the Pharisees, you know, in one sense saying and prophesying, oh, the whole world is going after Him. And then the next verse, some Greeks coming. The Greeks represent the whole world. The Greeks represent the unsaved nations that are now as the Pharisees are saying, coming, and they're coming with a request, we want to see Jesus. The Greeks represent 
the unsaved nations now coming, wanting to see Jesus. But of course, they are Greeks, they are Gentiles. They recognize that they have no right to just, you know, walk up to Jesus who is a Jewish rabbi. And so instead, they just go to Philip. And we're told that Philip is from Bethsaida. And the significance of it is that Bethsaida is the most Gentile of Jewish places. So they, 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 they find a disciple that in one sense is the most Gentile and they say to Philip, hey, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. The force of the Greek in the original is, is a continuous request. They, ask, they keep saying, they keep asking, we want to see Jesus. And Philip goes and asks Andrew and they both approach Jesus. And this moment is a significant moment in the life of Jesus. Because you see, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, throughout John's Gospel, we have been told about this hour right from chapter 2, where Jesus you know, was at the wedding in Cana, and then his mother came to him to request. But Jesus said, oh, woman. My hour has not yet come. Ah, so immediately from the beginning, we are introduced to this concept of the hour. And throughout the gospel, at certain points we are told, oh, you know, they tried to seize him, but they couldn't. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And so this hour had not yet come, had not yet come, until we reach this point. This significant moment in the life of Jesus when the Greeks who represent the unsaved nations, come and want to see Jesus. That is the trigger for Jesus to declare, now, now the hour has come, and it is the hour of the Son of Man's glorification. Now, what does it mean for the Son of Man to be glorified? In John's Gospel, for the Son of Man to be glorified, for God to be glorified, is that we see we come to understand, we see more clearly just who this Jesus is. It's not adding something to God, adding something to Jesus, but seeing Him more clearly. And in John's Gospel, it is seeing Him most clearly on the cross. It is at the cross that we see Jesus most clearly. So the glorification of the Son of Man is not just the thing that happens after the cross, you know, oh, you know, he goes down to his death, he suffers for us, but after the cross, he's resurrected, he's lifted, he's glorified. No, no, in John's gospel, it is at the cross, in that shame, in that suffering, that the Son of Man is glorified, that we see him most clearly for who he is, that he is this type of king. And so it is a significant moment in the life of Jesus. You try and picture the scene in your head. These Greeks coming, they want to see Jesus, and then Jesus making this declaration that, that, that the whole gospel has been rushing towards. What is this hour? When is this hour coming? And so at this hour that has now come, Jesus speaks. Jesus responds to the requests of the Greeks wanting to see him. But notice how he responds. His response is not to the Greeks directly. His response is to the disciples. He says, Very truly I tell you. Now the you there 
It's not you, the Greeks, but I tell you, my disciples, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Now what is happening is that Jesus is telling his disciples what he must do. What he must do, what must happen to him if salvation is to come to the nations. And verse 24, Jesus gives that illustration of that seed. The seed, in one sense, that has two ways to live. The seed that could choose to remain shiny and hard, but left on a shelf. But if it does that, it benefits no one. But the seed that chooses instead to be planted into the ground. What happens when it is planted into the ground is that it will be shattered. The outer shell will be shattered. It will die as a seed. But because it dies, it will have life. It will bear fruit. It will bear a great crop. It will have many more seeds. So unambiguously, Jesus is teaching that for life, for salvation to come to the nations, he cannot be a seed that's left on a shelf. Dry, shiny. No, he must be planted into the ground and die, face death, so that life can come to the nations. You see, you just imagine, where would you be if Jesus had chosen to remain loving his life like a seed on a shelf protecting himself? Because of all the people in the world, Jesus is the only one who, because he had never sinned, did not deserve death. I mean, he was the one who was, was in the embrace and bosom of the Father. He, he enjoyed the intimacy with God the Father. He, he had the, the, the best view of the universe. Right? But he came down and he chose to go to his death so that as the seed that is planted to the ground that dies, there can be life, there can be fruit, there can be a harvest, harvest of the nations. And so this is Jesus' response. As the, as the Greeks come to him, he teaches his disciples what he must do. But he does not stop there. Because he also teaches them what his followers must do. Not just what must happen to him. Not just what he must do. But what must happen to all who follow him. What all who follow him must do if salvation is to come to the nations. Look at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. You see, these verses make it clear that it is not just Jesus who faces that two ways to live, to be a seed left on a shelf or to be a seed that goes planted into the ground, dies and becomes fruitful. No, it also applies to all who follow him. His followers too have two ways to live. Will we choose to live a life as a single seed? No, loving our lives, protecting ourselves, 
You know, will we choose to just use our time, our energy, our opportunities and resources to use all those things to doing what's best for me? Or we can choose to hate our lives. And when Jesus says hate our lives, he doesn't mean, oh, yeah, you know, I, I hate my nose, I, I, I hate my kids, or I hate my house, you know, I hate my job. No, no, he doesn't mean that. Hate is the opposite of love. And what Jesus means here is instead of loving and protecting and having our lives be the main and only focus, it is to hate, it is to instead of uh, focusing on our lives, preferring something else. That our lives are used to serve a greater purpose and good. Which means using our time, energy, opportunity, resources to doing what's best for God's glory, for the kingdom of God, for the advance of the gospel. Now, George Mueller, some of you know that name. Uh, he was someone that was used greatly by the Lord, established many orphanages, saving many kids, and uh, was used by God to advance the gospel greatly in his time. And there was a time someone asked him, what has been the secret of your life? I mean, they saw all that George Mueller did, and they asked him, what was, what's, what's, what's the secret of your life? And George Mueller hung his head and said, there was a day when I died. When I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. A day that I died to the world, its approval or censure. A day that I died to the approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. You see, it is the, and it is only that follower of Jesus who is willing to hate his life not do everything for his self-interest and for the maximization or benefit for his life, but hates it, who is willing to die, to deny himself. Only that one will hear the call of Jesus, will be obedient, will be available, and will be prepared to do whatever and go wherever his Lord tells him to go so that salvation can come to the nations. You see, remember Jesus is teaching what must happen to him and what must happen to his disciples if out of that death, then can that life come for the nations. Jesus must die. He must die and his is a unique death. He must die so that we who have sinned we who have rebelled, we who deserve to face God's wrath. I mean, remember that picture, right? Learning from God's truth. Right? Everyone, right? Outside of Christ, right? Under God's wrath. That is where we are apart from Christ. And Christ has to die taking the wrath that all of us deserved. Taking it on himself so that forgiveness and salvation can come. And his followers, his followers must die. Because if we live this life only for the maximization of our benefit, our pleasure, then we will not heed the call. 
We will not do that which is risky. We will not go to the place that is uncomfortable. We will not make the sacrifices necessary. Because the unsaved nations are not in one sense like the Greeks. You know, they, they, they're clamoring, they're coming. Oh, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now, many of the unsaved nations that are, are present today, you look at them, it's, it's hard ground. Right? It's, it's strongholds of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. It's places where, where, you know, to be a Christian in some places is, is explicitly illegal. If the followers of Jesus are not willing to die, then who will heed the call? Who will lay down their lives? Who will deny themselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus to where he's going? You see, I asked the question, where would we be if Jesus did not lay down his life for us? We would be in a situation of you know, because of our sin, still under God's wrath. Now, the second question is, where are the unsaved nations? Where are they now? And the answer is, they are exactly at the place where we are if Jesus did not lay down his life for us. But you may say, Yes, I, 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 I follow Jesus. You know, I come to church, I serve Him where I can, but I don't think I'm called to the mission. And my plea with you is please don't say that. Please don't think that. Because this concept of, oh, some of us are called to the mission and some of us are not, is not a biblical concept. No, I think this, this concept of, some are called, some are not. It's something invented by the enemy. Something invented by the enemy, something invented by, by lukewarm Christians. So that we can pretend to be a Christian and not lay down our lives. But there is no such thing. The follower of Jesus must follow him. The follower of Jesus must deny himself, take up the cross, and go where his Lord is going. We are all called between the promise made to Abraham and the fulfillment of that promise where all the nations, from every people, every tribe, every language standing there before, between these things is us, and before us is that Lord who clearly made the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. We are all called. And obviously, it is different for different people. Not everyone physically goes cross-culturally, but all of us who are followers, we are all called. You mean different things for different people. For some of us, it will mean giving lots of money. Others of us, it means devoting ourselves to prayer. Not just praying when someone says, okay, let's pray for Tajikistan or something like that. No, but, but you have devoted yourself to pray for a particular group of a particular nation. Others of us, it really means 
going. For the students where they are on campus, it means reaching out, being friendly with uh, their friends, foreign students, showing love, laying down their lives in that way. It is not an easy road. And that's why Jesus tells us, gives us the promise. So here, verse 24, hear the promise Jesus makes. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But listen to the promise. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It will not be a waste. Your life that you make available to God, your life that you are willing to lose for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the fame of his name, it will not be a waste. Yes, people around you might say, Hey, why you choose to do that? Why you uproot your family and go to that country? I mean, it's insane to them. But it will not be a waste because it will bear much fruit. I remember the first time in my life as a young Christian, I learned this lesson. Uh, I had just finished reading the story of Jim Elliot and his four friends. Uh, obviously, you should put two and two together and realize that uh, Jim Elliot had a big impact on my life. That's why I named my firstborn after him. So anyway, I just finished uh, reading the story of Jim Elliot and as you know, the story is, you know, the five of them, they went to Ecuador trying to reach this tribe and the first attempt was successful, but the second attempt, the tribesmen got very suspicious and to save themselves, they speared all five missionaries to death. And so I remember I was lying in bed, I was just thinking, oh, why? Why did this happen? Because all five of them, they were like cream of the crop in their context. So Jim Elliott himself was, you know, like a college president, you know, president of a student union. He was, uh, you know, represented his university in wrestling. He was good looking. He was good at his studies. But he left all that, went to some tribal village. And at the ripe old age of 29, I lost his life. I was just lying in bed. I was just thinking, oh, what? Why, why did God allow that? I mean, it was such a waste. And then I remember the moment it hit me. That it was not a waste. And I was so overcome with realization that I, I jumped out of bed, I grabbed from my journal and I began journaling. And I remember the tears just coming down from my face because I realized this was not a life that was lived in vain, that was wasted. Because of his life, there were so many who responded to the call to follow Jesus to the mission field. And I had begun to feel through that, that impact on my own life. So I, yes, it's not a waste because I see now that example of Jim Elliot and his friends now having an impact on my own life. So it's not a waste. That is the promise Jesus makes to you. Second promise he makes, verse 25. He says, Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it 
for eternal life. Whoever hates will keep it. But there is the other side to the promise, which is whoever loves, you will lose it. So in the end, there is not two ways to live for the follower of Jesus. If we are followers, if you are the whoever that wants to follow Jesus, and the whoever is not, oh, you know, some great pastor, some great missionary, or oh, I'm just an ordinary Christian. No, no, the whoever is whoever who wants to follow. This is the promise. You want to have eternal life. You must hate your life now. You cannot live for yourself now. Because Jesus did not come and give his life so that you can continue living yours. He came to give his life so that you can live for him and in living for him, truly experience life and have eternal life. And the third promise in verse 26, My Father will honour the one who serves me. Do not live now for the temporary adulation and honour of all that the world gives. Live in such a way for the one whose honour of you will never fade. So the Greeks came and the Greeks made a continuous request. We want to see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Do you see where he has gone? I mean, this is the thing that I've been praying for myself and for you, that we would see where Jesus has gone. That this is the Jesus who has gone to the cross. We follow a crucified Lord. And if he has gone there and we are about following him, then that is where our life must be as well taking up our cross, following Him, being poured out for the life of the nations. May God help us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.